Before we start this first episode, Eric, why don't you tell us how we got here, how this podcast came to be? So Ryan and I have been exchanging stories for quite a long time. We both have pretty wild jobs there between being doctors, medics, uh, uh, prosecutors. And uh, I had initially wanted to maybe even write a book about this, but you know, every time I tried, it just kind of fell apart. And we thought that doing a podcast would probably be the most straightforward and easy format for us to tell our stories in a meaningful way. That's right. Not only that, but like we've just come across uh, really interesting people with really unique stories that aren't public facing. They wouldn't ever have a larger audience to hear uh, their stories. So, so we were talking about ourselves, like this kind of would be perfect for a podcast. So we got together uh, a group of guys that we know, you, a doctor, me, a prosecutor, uh, Ryan Connor, comedian, um, Adrian Bonnenberger, journalist, author, and what you'll recognize with all those job titles, by the way, is that none of them are professional podcasters. So this first episode, some of the audio, not all of it, some of the audio is not up to what we were hoping for. Uh, so don't judge us too harshly. We definitely corrected it and corrected course afterwards. Uh, but anyway, we're proud of it. We, we enjoyed making it. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Welcome to the Baggage Podcast. Uh, what we'd like to do with this show is tell stories from the EMS and military and law world, um, share our experiences, and maybe explore some of the effects that it's had on mental health and our overall psyche. Uh, I'm Eric Shaw. I am a pediatrician in the Denver region. Um, with me today is Ryan Connor, Ryan Frank, and Adrian Bonnenberger. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves now. I'm Ryan Connor, and uh, I, I'm a comic and writer, and probably the least qualified um, to to talk about anything we're going to be talking about. I'm Ryan Frank. I'm a prosecutor in Virginia, and uh, served some time in the Marine Corps. I have some stories, and I agree. Ryan Connor has very little to contribute to this entire endeavor. Adrian Bonnenberger. I am Ryan Frank's brother-in-law, a journalist and a writer, and I was in the Army Infantry for about seven years, did a couple combat tours to Afghanistan, and most recently went over to Ukraine to help train Ukrainian uh, soldiers before their counteroffensive in 2023. What I'd like to do as far as uh, the storyline of this is start from the very beginning of my medical career, which started when I was in college at Virginia Tech. Um, I joined the Blacksburg Volunteer Rescue Squad, and to start off, I, I earned my uh, EMT, which is a basic provider uh, skill level there. And most of what we did there was very simple and basic, and nothing was too crazy. This was before the mass shooting at Virginia Tech, which luckily I was not involved with. Um, but just some of the experiences, even starting there, kind of give you a feeling of what it was like uh, to move through this world. And so much of it is starting with uh, almost adrenaline and excitement and you're you want to see trauma and you want to see these crazy things and you want to be the first one there to help out which kind of sets the tone for how you process things as you go um, one of the first experiences i had that was i'd always heard about this but never knew how true it was was the first time i did cpr on somebody and it was when i was in the hospital i was still actually doing my emt training and when you do the compressions you break people's ribs and you can't quite describe that feeling until you've actually experienced it. 
And the attending that I was working with saw the look on my face as I, as I pushed down and heard everything break. And she just looked at me calmly and said, just keep going. This is what we're going to do. And it was just a, an eye opening experience uh, to feel that it's something that you can't kind of prepare somebody for that. So how, um, how old are you when this is going on? Uh, 19. I was 19. 19. Um, the only other thing that I saw in Blacksburg that was kind of uh, a little stressful was the, my first traumatic uh, death that I saw. And it was on a back road in Blacksburg where a guy seemed to be racing his car and crossed over the double yellow and hit another car head on. He did not have a safety belt. His uh, airbags did not deploy if he had them. Um, and he was dead on impact. And when we got there, the lieutenant was kind of over by the car examining him. And I went over and I asked, you know, are we going to, are we going to work this guy? Are we going to do something? And he's like, look at him. He's, he's dead. We're just not. And that never kind of occurred to me as an option. And I always thought that we would do everything and push as hard as we could. And he's like, no, this guy's been dead for 20 minutes. There's nothing we can do. We're going to help the other people. Cause in the other car, um, the passenger, I believe was not buckled in and she went underneath the dashboard and she'd broken her femur. And so we pulled her out and we got her in the, in the truck and we're taking her and the, the driver was with her and we were trying to kind of talk everybody down. And the driver looked at us and goes, what, ha what happened to the other driver? And there was just this uncomfortable silence in the, in the truck. And we said, well, we're, we're taking care of him. You know, let's, let's focus on your friend here. And uh, no one kind of looked her in the eye after that. And it was just a very unsettling moment. From there, I graduated college. I had, was trying to get into medical school. I did not get it on the first try. Uh, and so I moved to Richmond, Virginia to start a master's degree there. And as I did that, I was in the process of completing my cardiac tech certification, which for all intents and purposes in the Richmond system was the same as a paramedic. So I was practicing now as a advanced life support provider, which is a huge increase in responsibility and uh, kind of technical abilities. So you go from taking blood pressures and driving the, the truck to uh, intubating IVs, drugs. And not only that, you're also the the lead uh, attending on the call. So if the fire department's looking at you, your partner's looking at you. Uh, sometimes the police force was looking at you to make the calls. And so it was a huge jump. Um, and I was only 21 at this point. So still very young, still very early in my career. And moving to Richmond was a huge culture shock, uh, which Richmond's not a huge city, was by far the biggest city I'd ever lived in. And to kind of be living on my own for the first time, be starting a master's program and uh, practicing professionally now as a paramedic was a was a big jump. Um, it's like, like, what, 2001, somewhere in there, right? Uh, 2002. 2002. Yeah. So Richmond, for anybody that doesn't know around that time, pretty, pretty decent violent crime rate, too. So you're seeing... Not, not just... Crime not just pretty decent, very violent. Um, we would train these special forces medics. Uh, they had a partnership with, uh, with MCV, the medical school I ultimately went to and with Richmond ambulance authority who I worked for. And so we would sometimes have the medics on, or the uh, special forces guys on the buses with us and ultimately in the hospital system as well. As I started on with Richmond ambulance, uh, you have to go through a preception program where you train under a uh, paramedic and they basically clear you after you exhibit certain skills and show you know appropriate judgment. And so me and another paramedic named Eric uh, were kind of the two junior partners uh, as we started up. Um, even as I started, there was a kind of odd moment that I went through and I, and I don't know why I found it so 
upsetting, but it was just really awful to hear. We had to do a um, portion of the training where we were in the call center and hear things from that side and kind of see what the dispatchers were doing and how their process worked. And we got a call from a bystander down by the river of some people that were whose friend was drowning. And this was happening in real time over the phone. And you could hear the people in the background just absolutely losing their mind and trying to get this person out. And, and then the bystander was becoming more involved with it. And then our dispatcher you, kind of walking. You could hear. So how are you tied into the call? Like you can hear yes. the call happening? Yes. So I'm sitting right next to the dispatcher listening okay. in to the whole thing. And so she's walking them through what to do and trying to get this bystander to kind of help more and make sure that the ambulance has directions to get it exactly where they need to be. But it was just, it was very eerie um, and really upsetting to kind of hear this happening and to hear these people or, or friends, you know, watching their friend or, or seeing their friend and listening to their friend drown. Uh, and that, that was kind of my introduction there. The next story was kind of my introduction to Richmond Ambulance Authority and realizing just how naive and how soft I was and not realizing what I was getting into. So on my second night there, uh, it was my first time ever working overnight shifts. I'd done, you know, calls and things like that, but this is the first time of like, Hey, you're going to show up at work at, at nine o'clock and you're going to go till nine o'clock the next morning. And this is it. Um, I was paired that night with the head of our training department and his best friend, who was the head mechanic there. And these guys were an interesting pair. Um, the head of training was what we called kind of like a trauma squirrel. Uh, and these were people that just really liked their job a little too much. Um, they really, really enjoyed the big traumas and the big action stuff, which, um, th again, there's an adrenaline junkie kind of vibe to a lot of EMS stuff. This guy had it in spades. Um, and so the night this start is a podcast for them, then we should get them on this podcast. You don't want to talk to this guy, a trauma squirrel. Yeah. I <laughs> um, have the, you know, psychopaths too. <laughs> um, so our night started out and it initially just like, we were basically joking it up with some homeless guys. And like, I, as a naive, not city dweller got ripped off for buying like some glasses to try to like give this guy some gas. He wanted gas money for his car, but he's just ripping us off. And this guy and his partner are like chasing him around Richmond, like spotlighting him as he's like running through the grass. And it was just Wait a minute, they're fake glasses. What type? What do you mean? Yeah. Just like drinking glasses. The whole thing was just bizarre. Oh, I, just, I, I was picturing like, <laughs> you, bought, no, you know, some I, bifocals. I'm such a yokel and I didn't understand the whole just rip off thing that happens in the city. And it was just very <laughs> weird. So um, hold on, hold on. A guy was selling like pint glasses on the street. Yeah, yeah basically. It was just weird and i felt bad and how was it in what way was it a ripoff did they have cracks in them or they were you just overpriced they or probably had, they probably had lead in them i don't know but he was just like <laughs> it was just some sort of gimmick gotcha and, gotcha gotcha and my partners were like what are you doing don't talk to him don't engage why, do, why are you doing this and yeah i wasn't ready for this so we get dispatched to a shooting and um as we're going, I'm talking to my partners and I said, Hey, look, I've never been on a shooting before. This is new to me. And he put things really succinctly and it made sense. Uh, he said, look, it's really easy. You plug the holes, you put them on the backboard and we go, we're not doing surgery on them in the field. We're trying to get into the hospital as, as fast as possible. So it's actually really easy. And I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Well, let's see how this goes. And I hope at that moment you, you pointed out that if you'd bought the shot glasses, you know, it, 
they would have been useful. That's that's what shock losses are for. Some sort of misunderstanding like that. <laughs> so the fire department gets there before we do, and they get on the radio and they say, "Hey, be advised, the patient's been hit in the head, but he's still breathing." And and I didn't understand that. I thought maybe it glanced him, maybe it grazed him. Um, when we got there, police, uh, had already, um, made sure that everything was safe. The fire department was there. And as we walk up, I can see I was wrong. He'd been shot in the forehead and the bullet had exited the back of his head and his brains were all over the ground and he was still breathing. It had gone high and it missed his brainstem. And so as we go up, there's shell casings around, there's brains on the ground. And as I'm getting under him to get the backboard, I'm actually stepping in his brains as we're picking him up. We get him in the back of the truck and my partner says, okay, it's time to innovate him now. He's not stable and he's going to crash anytime. So go ahead and innovate him. And when you innovate somebody, you have to put your elbow on their forehead to stabilize it. And he has brain bits and skull sticking out of this hole. And at that point he starts to seize and his whole basically system locked up and we couldn't even open his mouth. So my partner then did a surgical crike in the field and we intubate him through his neck. Oh no, what's a surgical crike? It it's sounds... When it's when you awesome. make yeah. a small cut across the trachea and you insert the uh, intubation tube through that hole from the outside. You're skipping the mouth. Yep, you're skipping that completely. And so we intubate him. And as we pull up to the hospital, he begins to go into cardiac arrest. And it was like what you see on TV. I was I was riding on the side of the, the gurney doing chest compressions. Uh, we roll into the, the trauma suite in the ER. There's 20 people waiting for us. And they are, we give the report and we pass them off and, and I just about lost my mind. Like the amount of like adrenaline that was going, the amount of action that it was, uh, it was just completely overwhelming. And when I went At out, this point, how long, how long had you be, been an EMT between Blacksburg and Richmond? Uh, two, two years. Did you, did you see that like veteran EMT people in that scenario would kind of like phone it in a little bit like maybe they see what's or is it does everyone just treat it the exact same no matter what most of these people are professionals um i mean there, there's exceptions but like most of these people like do they're there to do their job and a lot of these guys again they, they really like the adrenaline aspect of it so I, I never really saw phoning it in maybe like a challenge too right like this guy's yeah. probably not supposed to make it yeah yeah I, and it's a you know as i got into medical school like with the training stuff that that definitely shown through more but for, for this guy in particular my the guy i was working with that evening he he was 110 percent. He, he loved this stuff um i, I went back I got a quick question. On, on the subject of this this gentleman who had been headshot like very severely uh i realized we're talking a little bit about we're talking a lot about you know very difficult things um traumatic things for you uh as the person giving care but also for the person who is in need of care do you look at a thing like that and just think like why am i even doing this like the brain's outside the head that's like you know that's pretty much rescuing this this human i have to understand it's your job to rescue him and and, and to try to preserve them try to preserve their life you know man or woman but you look at the brains and you sort of think to yourself, yeah, I mean, what's being preserved here? Like automatic breathing in, breathing out. At that moment, that didn't even occur to me. Um, I can tell you with in the future, it definitely did. And, and I have some things that I'll uh, share along that vein where things started to kind of get under my skin with that. But at that moment, it was system overload. 
and it was pure muscle memory reflex. Just move forward, do your job and, and get them there. Um, and one thing, particularly for the, the medical staff at the hospital, there's something that the residents will call like a training code. And this is where someone is beyond saving and they will work them 110% and they will do every possible procedure and thing that they can on this person. Not because they think that they can save them because they need to know how to do these things for the ones that they can. And so that's basically what happened with this gentleman. Um, and when I walked back in, I could see them doing the full deal where they'd done a thoracotomy, where they'd opened him up. They were doing manual massage of his heart. Like it was, they, they worked him hard um, until he, he expired. And when I was done, um, I went back out to the ambulance and the other partner was back there. And there's a scene from uh, Bringing Out the Dead, the, the uh, Martin Scorsese movie uh, with Nicolas Cage where he's a paramedic. And uh, his partner is just mopping out a absolutely destroyed ambulance, just blood everywhere. And that's what it was. There was a river of blood running down the back of that ambulance. And uh, we cleaned up. And we moved on. And what happened later that night is what kind of stopped me from quitting. Because at that moment in time, I was like, I don't know what I've done. This was not what I signed up for. Uh, I don't really want to be here right now. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. That morning, our last call was to a drug overdose. And it was a young kid. He was probably about 15, 16 years old. He was unresponsive. Um, we started, he wasn't breathing uh, well. And we got a line on him and we gave him some Narcan, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with now that's been in the news a lot recently. And he improved a little bit, but his respiratory status was still very poor. And with someone who's still kind of, uh, you're only supposed to intubate someone who's completely unresponsive. And this guy was not completely unresponsive. So we did something that I'm pretty sure it's not even done anymore. It's called a nasal innovation. And where you basically take the uh, innovation tube and you put it through their nose and as you drop it down at the back of your throat, you listen at the, at the end of it and you're listening for them to breathe in. Um, cause what happens when you breathe in is your epiglottis moves out of the way, your airway opens up. And at that moment you stick the tube down further and you get it into their airway. Um, we did it. We got it. We got him stabilized. This is as far as his respiratory status goes. Um, and we transport him to the hospital to know, and I, I followed up on him later to know that that kid survived and did fine because of our interventions was amazing. And I went home that I night. That, that is, that was, a, that followed the gunshot wound. Yeah. That same night, how far apart? Just a couple hours. And you said you followed up. How often were you able to, you know, you go to a car accident and someone's like borderline. How often do you actually, would you find out the result? Um, I would say pretty frequently. We we would talk with the ER staff and, and kind of get scuttlebutt there. Did you have like serious trouble sleeping for a while? That night, yes. Um, and so I came home. It was nine in the morning and I didn't sleep for almost two days. And it wasn't like mm -hmm. it was a combination of almost a high I can't explain from the saving the the one guy the one guy. It mm -hmm. was just such mm -hmm. a, a rush. Um, and to, to be a part of that was what I think every person who gets into EMS does it for that. There is that, again, this, this, uh, adrenaline junkie factor that drives EMTs and medics, uh, as well as like the altruistic portion of it. Um, but it's a combination. It's, it's not all one. It's not all the other. Uh, mm -hmm. and I was just, 
exhilarated. I was hooked. And even though the shooting thing had been so traumatic, it was still exciting. And, and I was like, okay, well, this is what, this is what life in the big city is like. This is what it's going to be transitioning into something a little bit lighter and a little bit funnier. Um, the, the guy that I worked with the most, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I don't know. This has been great. And I think incredibly humorous. So I don't know how you can make it funnier, please. (laughs) Um, the guy that I, the guy that I ultimately worked with a lot, uh, his name was Eric Hudgens. I hope I can get him on the show. Um, we were both trainees at the same time and we're working under the same, uh, older medic and it wasn't the, the, the trauma squirrel anymore. Uh, it was a different gentleman and we would take turns on calls and we got called out to a, a man down unknown cause, which 99% of the time was a homeless person passed out somewhere. And we arrive on the scene and it is a homeless gentleman asleep on a, um, bus bench and we just noticed that there's just weird stuff about it. Like his pants were all kind of rumpled around him. He's sitting on a bunch of newspaper and, and it was Eric's turn and he went over and, and tried to arouse him and wake him up. And the guy was just plaster drunk. And he said, Hey, look, you know, you know, people are worried about you. Do you want to come with us? And he said, sure, sure. I'll come. And as we stand him up, we realized that the reason he was sitting on paper newspapers was he'd shit himself in an epic way. That was just basically he had paper mache the papers all around him and was just plastered up and down his back. And normally the two trainees would ride in the back with, uh, with, uh, the preceptor and, and work someone up together and with one of them leading, I opted not to. And I sat in the front seat with our driver and basically made fun of them the entire time through the back window because the smell that he brought into the ambulance was something epic and did not come out for the rest of the shift, no matter how much we tried. Now, now I imagine that's kind of the intersection of, you know, this, this kind of stuff is going on, but once someone makes a 911 call, yeah. like there's like medical ethical, like oh, we can't just drive away now. Like you can't just drive away. Right. I mean, you gotta, yeah. the patient has to sign a medical refusal I, if you drive away. Two part question. When you're an EMT, how often do you end up with someone shit on you? Uh, and two, do EMTs end up with the most shit on them of any doctor or would a GI doctor end up with more? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, GI doctors by far. Um, basically sticking your finger yeah. in someone's ass is a GI doctor's hello. But um, I'm talking on a clothes, on clothes, because <laughs> I would burn them immediately if I, if I got someone shit on my clothes. You're not, you're is, not wearing is. your latest gay crew shirt, man. I think they're going to have like scrubs on and stuff, you know. We had uniforms. It's, it's, it's getting burned, though. It's getting burned. <laughs> nurses get it the worst nurses have to clean people up all the time all right. nurses definitely have it so everyone's just getting shit all over their clothes all the time they're on their scrubs or their or their emt uniform oh uh, i'm not gonna say it doesn't happen i don't think it's as common as you're insinuating but like it is okay the hazard of the job because i'm gonna tell you that would be the thing that got me out of it that would like if i was considering being an emt it, and then if, if someone told me you're gonna get shit on you about once a week and like, oh <laughs> someone else's job yeah not the <laughs> sure sure yeah because of this conversation this podcast now qualifies as pornography in both japan and germany by the way oh <laughs> i was just valuable about, markets we've lost those I just think about, it's like it's like pornography where you have a vision about what what high like what kind of cool stuff is going to you know emt stuff is going to be and the reality of it is like no one no one would no one would want to do this, you know, on a day, on an individual case basis, it's probably like, why would anybody do this? Like, this is, this this is not going to be a commercial, right? It's the idea of it is why people want to do it. 
but the actual practical application, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't sign up for that. If you let me, that's the question. If you knew, right? So you ultimately wanted to be a doctor, but if you knew that you wanted to do the route and be an EMT, and then, you know, future you could have told you, hey, this is this is, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Do the actual things you're going to experience. Do you think you would have done it? That's a question I've asked myself a lot, and, and particularly with writing these stories down and doing this podcast, I, I feel like this is a good way for me to kind of reflect on that. Um, and the question is, I don't know. It's kind of a coin flip. There were so many benefits that I that I did get from it um, that I think made me a better doctor in particular. Um, but there's also things that kind of chipped away at my inside, and that's uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think the, some of the biggest things that it taught me was um, how to triage patients effectively. And so when I was in medical school, particularly in residency, uh, many of the, the, the students had never even laid hands on patients before. It was all academic for them, whereas I had a tremendous amount of hands-on experience. And I could look at someone and assess them before I even touched them and be like, this guy's dying or this guy's really sick. Like we need to, we need to move faster right here and now. Um, so there was a skill set that I had that many of my peers did not. Um, now that I am a outpatient pediatrician, I'm not sure that those are particularly valuable skills to me anymore, but you know, through my progression, yes, they were helpful. Um, and when I was going through this, I, I, I thought many of the things that I was kind of toughening myself for and experiencing were good for me. Um, that this was part of the, part of the profession, part of what I signed up for and to discount that during the time, I, I can't do that. So it's a hard question to answer. And I, again, I'd say it's a 50, 50 split at this point. The, the next thing that I, uh, I want to talk about was the first time I went to a crack house and, and I know that term gets kind of thrown around loosely. Um, but if you've ever, yeah, that was my story, the first time I went to a crack house, you go first, go ahead. It's soul crushing. Um, to see it in real time and to not also to not be prepared for it where no one tells you like, Hey, we're going to a crack house. So like to kind of like gird yourself for this. It was just, so like, we're, we're talking about like a condemned house mm -hmm. where people are squatting and doing like, like that kind of deal. Right. Yeah. Just so I'm picturing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, okay. you, can call it, you can call it a drug den if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't know if it was like, Oh, people live here and they do a lot of crack here. If it's like the wire, you know, people yeah, ducked into this condemned building kind of thing. Very much so. Um, and again, mm -hmm. I, I didn't know that this is what we were doing. Um, we got called, I think, for an overdose or, you know, it may have actually been like a chest pain or panic attack. Because I think the girl was having some sort of reaction to the drugs that she was taking. But when we walk in, what's weird is no one seems to care that there's paramedics and police coming in. There's just people passed out all over the place. And when I say people, there's 20, 30 people in this house. And no one cares that we're doing this. No one's reacting to us. No one's talking to us. And we finally get up to the patient upstairs. And there's one or two people that are kind of interacting with her um, and kind of talking us through. But they're all high. And they're all you know, not acting lucidly or normal. And to just kind of look around and just see, I mean, just utter human despair. It was not what I had expected. Um, and it was just a very odd, odd experience. Where you know, are... This is the prosecutor and me. Where are the cops in all this? So you go, do you go in there without cops? I don't think there were police with that one um, because it was a medical call. And so unless there's a, a crime being committed, then the police don't usually show up. We could have called the police, but really? like, that's not our job. We're not going to say, Hey, you got to bust up this house. Like we're, that's not our job. 
No, I get that part. I was just thinking for like safety reasons, you would, well, you would think some people would have policies of like, you have to have the police there before you do whatever. For So to, to break things down a little bit with that one, for any sort of violent call, shootings, fights, uh, things like that, the police would uh, go first and we would stage about a block or two away and wait for clearance. And then we would come in um, for any larger traumatic calls or for uh, more significant stuff. So cardiac arrests or things like that, the fire department would come with us and we'd frequently have extra hands. Otherwise, an EMT crew is just two people. It's just two partners, usually an EMT basic and a, a paramedic. Now the firefighter people, when they show up, do you get, you're like, I'm a real EMT, get out of the way. Or is it like they have a lot of the same training? How does that work? Um, they were all, I think EMT basics in Richmond. Richmond had a, a split system of, they had the contract with Richmond ambulance authority, but then they had a professional firefight, Richmond firefighting department. Um, and we worked together, but we were two separate systems. Um, and we had a, a really good working relationship. I, I really liked most of the firefighters that I worked with. Um, and they were very helpful and very respectful. And it was oftentimes kind of bizarre, uh, where most of them were in their thirties and forties and here I am 21 and they're like, what do we do, sir? And I'm like, fuck if I know, like you guys have more experience than I do. And they're like, no, you're the boss. And I'm like, okay, here we go. We, we went. We, we've known each, uh, Eric and I have known each other since high school and I knew you and, and hung out with you in college when you were EMT. It is terrifying to think people were looking to you in an emergency situation of what to do. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. back then. And that's yeah. scary. I, I've got a story in a little bit that I'll share that is, uh, that really kind of took that up to another level. Um, the first, before we move on, I just want to say one thing, which is, uh, the thing, like the thing that really grabbed me about the last story is going is that is responding to potentially like a call for somebody having a panic attack in a crack den which isn't to say that people in crack houses or whatever else don't uh deserve medical treatment and services i'm just sort of like when you get down to that level what you know what constitutes a panic attack i'm in a house with 30 people i don't know i'm probably going to have a panic attack and you add crack and the building is condemned and there are you know infested with bugs and everything else uh it it's it just seems pretty unthinkable kind of crazy yeah yeah that's i mean everybody needs care and it's not always the same so a couple months in i graduated my preception and i was cleared and put on the streets and at that point um i did not have any oversight uh from a more senior paramedic. It was me and a EMT basic kind of cruising the streets and doing our thing. And I was a full professional paramedic at that point. Um, it didn't take more than a month before I got called out to my first cardiac arrest. And like I said, the adrenaline thing was kicking in. I was excited. And I know that sounds kind of awful for you know someone is, is dying. And uh, I was excited. I wanted to test my skills. I wanted to do what I was trained to do. And as odd as this sounds, it went as perfect as it could have gone. Um, I got the innovation on the first try on the first try. Uh, I got the IV in, we were, um, doing the, the drugs. I don't believe we had to defibrillate her. I think she was in PEA. Uh, but we worked her on the scene for about 10, 15 minutes. We transported, transported her to the hospital. Um, she did not survive, but she was still in PEA, which means like she still had some electrical activity in her heart when we got her there and dropped her off, which for a paramedic, that's a big deal. It, it shows that you did everything that you were supposed to do and that your protocols were correct and your decisions were correct. 
And it was something where, again, I didn't sleep for like two days afterwards. I was like calling my, right. my preceptor. I was calling my friends. I was like, I did this. I, I, I did it. And we, again, we worked with the fire department. We had them. I was managing a crew of six people at that point to get this done. And it went as flawlessly as possible. And I was very proud of myself for that. You're saying you didn't sleep for two days. So that's two days of like, just pumped about it, like excitement yeah. or like yeah. you, you didn't view it as like a trauma or anything. No, it wasn't bad. It was good. It, it was, I was excited because I had tested myself and, and it, everything I, I proven worthy, if you will, I, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And, um, and again, I was proud of myself. That makes me think of like doctors that like you had told me one time, you know, wait till you kill your first patient or whatever is like something doctors have to experience or whatever that when our EMTs worried about like getting sued and stuff, like no. what that that's not the issue that it is for MDs. You, we're all protocol driven. So unless you do something completely aberrant uh, and don't, you know, don't get off from your protocols, you are covered. Um, so it, it's and again, unless the biggest things that EMTs will run into is car accidents. So someone, the driver who's driving, too fast or not stopping like they're supposed to at lights and they hit somebody. That's where paramedics get into trouble. The next one is kind of a funny story, particularly with talking about the Richmond fire department. So we had one summer day, uh, Philip Morris had barns there where they would fumigate their tobacco. And from what I understand, they would basically seal them off and put these uh, chemicals in that normally when they would open up the vents would all just kind of float away and not be a problem. Um, something went wrong that day where it was either the barometric pressure was off or they put too much of the chemical in there. But when they opened the doors, instead of floating away, it floated out in a giant cloud of toxic gas across South Richmond and was floating through some of the neighborhoods. And we got dispatched to it. And being the smart and cautious person that I am, we staged a block away from it and watch this cloud move through the neighborhood. And we were talking with our dispatchers and we were like, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to Describe help? The cloud. How, what is it? What is a cloud of toxic chemicals floating through Richmond look like? There's a big white puffy cloud on the ground. Looked like fog, looked like a fog bank, but except that it was insecticide and it was just floating mm -hmm. along the ground and it was about 20 feet is high. The news? That feels like newsworthy. It should have been. I don't believe it was, but that's crazy. I'm sure Philip Morris probably squashed that one. Um, that's, that's really so, so we, we watch this and we're like, well, what, what is our job here? Are we supposed to help people to get exposed or are we supposed to like, I don't know. And as we watch a Richmond fire department truck goes plowing right into the cloud and we're like, Oh, that's, that's not good. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with that now. Uh, so they did not stage, they did not listen to their radio dispatchers and drove right into the cloud of toxic chemicals. And so that they became our patients. They drove out and they met us a couple blocks away. And we were like, what were you thinking? And they're like, I don't know. We just went, we, this is where we dispatched to. And we went, this is before Google maps or anything like that. We're using map books and atlases and there's no, you know, you see on the, the police cars and stuff. Now they have the whole big screen. We didn't have that. We had a map book, uh, and a pager. And so these guys went right into the cloud and we took care of them. They weren't super sick. They were coughing a little bit and we drove them to the hospital. And as we come back for another call later in the day, we see the firefighters sitting there and they're like, Oh, there he is. You know, doc wants to see you. And I'm like, 
why does the doc want to see me? And they're like, well, we're all being uh, admitted to the hospital for observation. They, they want to see you too. And they, they think you should come too because you were exposed to us. And I was like, no, fuck yourself. Like I'm not spending the night in the hospital because you guys were idiots. And I got to the hospital as quickly as I could before the attending could find me because I was not willing to spend the night for a secondary exposure because they were stupid. Could they uh, have kept you there? I mean, what's the law? Like, like will your employer have made you stay they, or something like that? Potentially, but uh, it didn't come to that. No one ever followed up and I was fine. So, uh, the next one hit kind of close to home. Um, we were dispatched to what sounded like uh, either an unresponsive patient or an overdose. And it was in a, a small apartment in the basement. And the girl was in the bathroom and kind of uh, unresponsive up against the bathroom door. So we had to basically break the door uh, down. Roughly how old? She was 19. And this is where, uh, this is where it kind of got. Uh, a little tough. Um, she had drank uh, a bottle and a half of antifreeze. And, um, and we don't know how long she'd been down. She was still breathing, but she was uptunded and not responsive. And, um, and so we didn't, we couldn't work her. There was nothing for us to really to do other than to start an IV on her and just kind of support her respirations. And um, as we got to the hospital, I talked with the attending and he's like, she's, we don't know how long this has been, you know, even if we take her to the ICU and, and try to start therapy, uh, it's unlikely that she'll survive. Basically her, she's destroyed her kidneys. Everything else will follow. Um, and to see someone roughly my age kill themselves in such a manner. And so alone in a bathroom of a basement mm -hmm. apartment was, that was rough. That was a really tough one. I, 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 it, it, it's, it's, pretty quick that, that things are getting to your kidneys, right? Like, like it, it, how small is the window where you can try to get someone to puke up some sort of toxic uh, chemical like that? Not, not long. Um, maybe an hour yeah. or two at the most. Um, and with, with antifreeze, okay. that's a particularly rough one. I mean, there's a couple of things in medicine, mm -hmm. like you just really don't want to mess with. So like a Tylenol overdose is exceptionally bad. Um, antifreeze is exceptionally bad. Uh, Drano is exceptionally yeah. bad. There, there's just certain yeah. ones where like, you're not going to walk away. Okay. If you did that, uh, I'm particularly it, is it thought that this person was trying to kill herself yeah. or was she just like, uh, had a lot of addictions and was like, well, this fucked me up. Uh, you know, with the EMS world, you never know. Like psychotic. You're, you're, you're mm -hmm. seeing these people in this like window of time, this little snapshot in the worst moment of their life. And so you don't, yeah. you don't know them. It's, um, it's the bottle and a half aspect of it. Cause then there's, you deal with bottle and then you open up another bottle is like, you, you don't want to be here. Don't mind the flavor too. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's a wild way to go. Yeah. You would think yeah. that it would touch your tongue and you would go, okay, I'm using something else. No, she, right. she wanted to make that happen. Um, Jeez, man. Oh, uh, the next one was kind of funny and it was just going back into like your police world and just the response time of like the, or the, kind of over top responses that we can have. Um, so we get dispatched to a shooting and the, the call was a, a teenager has been shot in the neck. And so we're expecting like the worst of the worst. And we stage and police is kind of looking around and all we see is a couple of families having a barbecue in a park and no one seems alarmed and no one seems upset. And the police finally figure out what's going on and call us in. And basically it was like some other teenagers had shot one of the kids in the back of the neck with a BB gun. And he had a tiny little hole in the back of his neck, but there was like 10 cop cars, two fire or two fire trucks and us. 
in this kid. He's like, hey, man, they just they shot me in the back of the neck. Like, what are you going to do about it? I'm like, nothing. Jesus Christ. Like, how much resources did like this cause because someone didn't understand, you know, the phone call or didn't explain things on the phone call? How old were the kid? Was the kid? Like 14, 15. I, I thought you were going to say, instead of it being a BB, I thought it was that he got shot in the neck, but it was like the the dick neck, not the, which is like, <laughs> not the head, but the neck of the dick. The <laughs> <laughs> um, other thing it could have been in my mind was like, it, it was just somebody that everybody really didn't like. And so people <laughs> had been upset that the person had been shot, but you show up and everyone's just barbecuing. They're like, well, you know. It was, it was about time. He just kept running his mouth and, you know, we all knew it would happen eventually. <laughs> right. Somebody, uh, called, somebody called EMS on, uh, on Davey. He had it coming. Yeah. Right. right, right. We're like, no, we just wanted you to know that this guy had been shot. We want everyone to know. We called the press too. It's a good thing. Along that vein, one of the interesting things that I found culturally uh, that I didn't expect, I guess I'd heard this in passing, but never realized how true it was. Um, with several of the shootings I had where they were more minor, where they were just, they weren't dying. Um, they wouldn't roll on people. They knew who shot them. And I'd be like, who, who shot you? Who did this? And they're like, and one of the guys had been shot in the face with a small caliber bullet. It went, you could see the hole through his cheek and his, it knocked a couple of teeth out. But other than that, he was for the most part. Okay. And we asked him, we're like, dude, what happened? Cause he was like in the middle of this like industrial area. And we we're like, what were you doing? He was like, I was just on the corner minding my own business. And we we're like, man, that always became the joke. The most dangerous thing to do in Richmond was just sit on the corner and mind your own business. That's how you get shot. Um, the next one's pretty wild because it was one of my first. <laughs> that should be like a, a little sound sting that you can use in the future. That's how you get shot. And just fucking <laughs> drop that in. <laughs> uh, the next one was neat because it was, it was one of my first experiences with significant mental health. Uh, as well as like some police dysfunction. Um, and I don't, I don't want to disparage, you know, any police officers cause they have a tough job too, but there were times where in the medical side of it, things got a little wonky. So this gentleman was, um, a bipolar and he was manic. And in that state, it's, it's like what you see on TV. It's like what the movies show you. And until you actually see it, you don't believe it. You don't understand what kind of crazy can be. And so some of the terms that we use in medicine are like flight of ideas and pressured speech. And these people were just like, the thoughts are just shooting out of their head and they're talking a mile a minute. And what they're saying makes almost no sense. Um, but they, in their mind are like completely lucid and they think that they're, everything is okay. Um, and he was agitated and he was not happy And the police. Whenever the police would get close to him, he would get more agitated and we were in his house and I don't exactly know what set it off or why we even got, I'm not sure who called, if it was him that called or his roommate or something, but someone had called that he was having trouble. And so I, I took him back to the kitchen and him and I sat down and we talked for about 10, 15 minutes. And I was like, Hey, look, I'm not here to hurt you. I want to get you some help. Like, let's go to the hospital. We don't have to involve the police. Like, it's just me and you let's do this. Let's I'll take you out to the bus. We'll have a nice ride no problems. Right. And he's calming down. I see him, the, the tension leaving and I'm like, okay, all right, we got this. Let's go. And as we start to walk out of the kitchen, there's four police officers kind of flanking the hallway and by the, and by the front door. 
And as we get closer, they start to kind of like lean in and I see him and, and I just, I look at his face. I'm like, he's going to run. He's going to bolt and he's out the front door and they're kicking the shit out of him. And they beat that man half to death. Uh, and I had to, I ultimately did not take him to the hospital because they took him to jail after they, after four cops just beat the ever loving shit out of this guy that I was going to take to the hospital. And that was a little frustrating. Uh, I feel like I kind of got undercut there. How many calls as an EMT were mental health related? Because now it seems like it's, it's a lot. It is a huge. Per- yeah. Yeah. We had a good amount. I mean, not, it was always a big part of it. Um, it was usually people that were in severe crisis. So it was people that were manic uh, or people that were like, we frequently would pick up um, some of the older Alzheimer's patients down on the South side. There was like a group home slash nursing home. And once in a while, one would get out and they would just be kind of wandering around uh, down by the Walmart down there. And we would just kind of find them and pick them up. And so there was quite a bit of mental health stuff. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of, you know, what, to a certain extent, what I was doing with the army infantry in Afghanistan, you know, we deployed over there twice. And I think I had a fairly, what we would call kinetic experience, which is to say, you know, a lot of fighting, nothing to do with Connecticut, but uh, a lot of shooting and fighting and which felt relevant for what we were doing. But then there was also a lot of presence patrols and what ended up being police work um, or, or what I thought of as police work, which is not what you do in, the infantry. It's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be fighting other infantry in the infantry. You're, you're a military. That's what militaries are for. And I see a lot of the, a lot of that sort of similar uh, mission creep or, or kind of like people being misassigned uh, or, or misallocated with the police. Like you call the cops over to somebody's house, they're going to be looking for a crime in a sense. Like, even if they're like, you know, not looking for a crime. That's really what they're there for. Um, and uh, yeah, it does seem like we, we need to do a better job as a society of like, not, not so much like, I don't know, like, like, like taking the police out of positions where they probably don't need to be there. Uh, so, so we can, you know, so we can offer uh, healthcare for people who are in healthcare crises uh, in law enforcement or, or backup for people, you know, who are breaking the law, which it sounds like this wasn't really a case of yeah. lawbreakers. So my next story is kind of gross, but also funny at the same time. Um, we got called for a foot injury and we go up to this gentleman's apartment and he's got this big kind of cast on his leg. And as we're getting his history, it, it turns out that he was a diabetic and, uh, he had had foot surgery several weeks ago that he was supposed to follow up on and just didn't. And as we continue to get this history, we also noticed that there's a very strong and very odd smell in the apartment. And it was something kind of like bread, but kind of like meat at the same time. And as we, as I fully grasp the problem that I have in front of me, and I realize that this gentleman's foot is rotting underneath of this cast, I made the stupid decision to take off the cast to see what we were dealing with, uh, which I should have left to the hospital staff because that is, I was not going to offer this gentleman anything. Um, and as I opened up the cast, his foot basically fell apart and it was all melting underneath the cast. And that's what the smell was, was a combination of uh, molding 
tissue and basically yeast. And it was a unique scent that I have only smelled a couple other times. But um, another one that was also slightly humorous and gross. Uh, we went to a call for, uh, sometimes we would go to a scene to confirm the death of somebody, you know, someone had been down for a while and the police found them or somebody found them. And we just had to basically come and say, yep, yep, they're dead. And we're not working and we're not doing anything. Uh, this gentleman had the largest collection of old school porn that I've ever seen in my life. He had floor to ceiling bookshelves of porn videos and we were all just amazed in in a in a bizarre way impressed it's just the volume and time that it probably took this gentleman to collect that's someone who just says i'll never date a woman for the rest of my life right <laughs> i think so and this is you know this is pre-internet being a real a big thing where like you know you'd have someone that if you die is going to delete your inner your search history this guy didn't have that set up <laughs> Uh, someone was supposed to come over and bag all that up and throw it out before he died. And they did not. It was thousands. What, what of did his parents think of it? What could, because they were living upstairs. What did they think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one is a, a similar story. Um, we got wait, called. Wait, I, I, I mean, are we really going to hate on a collector here? That's I mean, I'm I'm collecting baseball cards right now. I could you know, still collect like uh, you know books. It, you know, I mean, sure, he, the, the subject matter was was not great, but it's not like he was that uh, whatever that uh, the Supreme Court uh, the guy who paid all that the, all that money to the Supreme Court justice or sort of like who who collects Nazi memorabilia. I mean, it's just pornography. You know, I, I give this guy a pass on. He, that. he, was, he wasn't bothering anybody. <laughs> he had his own. We all, we all laugh and joke, but legit, that's probably worth some cash right now, depending <laughs> on the condition. If it's not too used, so to Ryan, speak, it's probably worth some money. Ryan, I bet there was a Ryan Connor video or two in there. What was the one? Uh, ass oh, half full? fuck it. <laughs> yeah, ass is half full. I mean, look, it, it, if um, this person had more than 10 videos, there was at least one Ryan Connor in there. Now, I love the fact that anybody that listens to this podcast they don't know who you are and yeah. don't know your podcast or any of your material. Yes. Don't give them context. Let's just leave it out there as if Eric just said, you do porn. <laughs> yes. Let's leave it. Let's anyway, leave it. do a Google search, not at work. Brian Connor, my ass is on fire too. Well, it's probably all of them. I think, I, yeah, I think she's in all of them. Unless it's like uh, American Ninja 3 where someone else stepped in for Dudikoff. So uh, the next story I have was a, a similar one of like calling out to to uh, say somebody was dead. And it was just the this whole scenario was so strange and so bizarre. Um, we get called out and the gentleman is clearly dead. And he's been dead for a long time. And this is July in Richmond. And he looked like a hot dog. He looked like at any moment that he might split and pop. And um, and we had to wait for, uh, I think, police to show up to kind of clear us to leave the scene uh, because then it becomes a crime scene after we're gone. And so we're looking around and there was no trauma to the body. We weren't worried about anything. And uh, as we walk around, we're like, man, how long has this guy been here? Um, I mean, there's flies and everything and it just smelled and we're like, this has been a while and we're looking around and we're looking at mail and ultimately my partner finds a calendar on the wall and this guy was a, 
a X marking day and he'd been there for almost two weeks and you could see where the X's had stopped. And it was just kind of surreal to be like, yep, that was his last day right there. That is wild. They say like Mm. the smell of human remains is, is unique. And I've never, thankfully I've never experienced that. Um, Is that something that kind of stays with you? Uh, No, because I smelled much worse things later on. That one was, it's gross, but I, I, uh, you know, the corpse flower, you Mm -hmm. heard of this? Yeah. So I, I just uh, smelled one like right when it was blooming uh, a couple weeks ago. To me, it was the most putrid odor I I have ever smelled. And uh, Rachel, my girlfriend was like, it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, you know, we do have a nurse friend who told us a story. Uh, ER. Uh, Ryan, you might remember this. Uh, a patient came in with this horrible smell that like cleared the room at first. And they it's like everyone had to regroup and try to figure out what is going on with this lady because there was something going on, uh, you know, with the psychology where she was not communicating <laughs> what was going on. Uh, initially they discover, wait a minute, it is coming from the bottom half of her body and they do an examination and she had shoved a Cornish hen into her vagina and it was, you know, they're not supposed to do that. <clears throat> and it had fully rotted. So that's the disgusting, stinky part. And then the doctor part is obviously, you know what <laughs> did happen after that, which is uh, remove everything. I was going to uh, guess murder. So remove everything. Is actually slightly <laughs> yeah, right. She murdered everyone in town. <laughs> Wait, uh, or the doctor murdered her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got two more stories. And one, we kind of alluded to this uh, as far as like, did, did I always feel like I was doing the right thing? And is this, you know, was this the, the right choice? I'd been a, now a professional paramedic for probably about a year and a half, uh, which at that point you're, you're kind of veteran. Like you, you've got your shit together. You know what you're doing. You got some street cred. Um, the next one was a call to a pediatric nursing center and it was for a cardiac arrest. And I never had worked a child before. And this was before I decided that I wanted to do pediatrics. Um, and I never had done really anything significant with, with children, much less a cardiac arrest. And so we get there and you know, she is arresting. She's not breathing. Um, we, I believe we intubated her. Um, I was not able to get a line on her and we ended up doing an intraosseous uh, line, which is where you put it into the bone. And we had a new device that would actually put it into their sternum, which was kind of a grisly maneuver to do, but we got the line, we got the medications in and we brought it back. And what I found out as we did this, um, and as I got more information from the providers there was that she had a progressive neurologic disorder, which was basically her, her brain was destroying itself over the course of time. And her family, they were immigrants from China, I believe. And do not res- what I was told was do not resuscitate does not translate well. And so they did not want to withdraw care from her. And we, I brought her back from a situation that she probably should not have come back from. And that really, really bothered me. Um, and still does. Mm-hmm. And 
when we got to the hospital and the ER attending kind of took over, things seemed to be going good. And as we were finishing up, the neurologist who'd been caring for her overall came down and completely lost his shit and was yelling at the staff. He did not know that I was the one that had done that. So he was not yelling at me, but he's like, who did this? Like she, this, she should have gone. Like, why are we doing this? And it, that really hit me hard um, where I felt that I, I had not done the right thing. I don't know if I understand that. Why? Why? So there was an understanding that if it's a certain kid, you shouldn't try certain things. Like, what, how would you have known that? I wouldn't. But she she was dying in, in, in more of the global sense of it, like long term and, and then obviously acutely. Um, and to do what we did just prolonged her suffering. And that, I think, is what bothers me the most. I, I apologize if you already said the age. How old was she? Nine, ten. Do you know what the outcome was after that? No, I, I didn't want to look into that one. And that, that's one, again, where like I mean, she had a fatal disease. And um, I mean, it was only going to end in one way. Question for you. Uh, this calls back to something you said in the beginning about chest compressions. And how they, you know, it's devastating. I, I read something recently about how um, a lot of people recommend not administering them to people over a certain age. I can't remember if it's like 70 or something like that because they say it's, it, or eight, maybe it's 80, but with certain complications because it's, their quality of life is going to be so low just because they aren't going to heal properly. Do you know anything about that? Is that, or is that just something that, a small group of doctors are suggesting you're probably correct. Um, the American heart association or whoever does the CPR training actually changed their recommendations. It used to be ABC. Mm -hmm. So like airway breathing, um, cardiac or compressions. Now it's cab. They actually want you doing compressions earlier and they don't want people actually mm -hmm. doing airway stuff because most people don't know what they're doing or you're just not, you're delivering, half oxygenated air and then not delivering it appropriately. Um, so they actually, the, the new guidelines are to like basically jump on the chest and start doing that. Um, you're, you're probably right. There is a, uh, an age where like, you're just not going to recover, but I mean, an important thing to think mm -hmm. about too, if you go into cardiac arrest outside of the hospital, your odds of survival about 1%. Uh, it's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're Daryl Hamlin and there, you have somebody with an AED right next to you, you're probably going to die. It's electricity or medications that are going to kind of turn things around depending on what happened. Mm -hmm. um, doing compressions, like it's not like the movies, like someone is not going to mm -hmm. bounce back. Uh, and if you're older, it's just bad news. Now in the hospital setting, your odds are much higher. You're usually on, you usually have an IV set up. You're usually in the ICU when these things happen and your odds are much higher. But as far as like the compressions mm -hmm. themselves, um, no, if anything, the, the, the the overarching powers that be have recommended actually more compressions. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was going to say that I'm a big soccer fan and there have been twice in the past two years where a player has gone into cardiac arrest on the field on live TV and immediate chest compressions are performed while they're getting the different relator unit out to the field. So well, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's exactly that while you're waiting for them. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. You don't, you don't stop. It is terrifying to see. So you're giving this person just a, a few more minutes of oxygen to their brain. And that's what you're ultimately trying to do with that. 
So, so if you're home alone and you find yourself in a cardiac arrest, not a panic attack, but like the heart is starting to go, does it give you any, is like, is the, the Hail Mary version of that taking a fork and just sticking it into a wall socket? Like, <laughs> no, no, definitely no, not. That's no. not, that, there, that is never helped. No. That is you, not. You're going to die. You're going <laughs> to die in pain. That's what you're going to do there. Um, this is my last story from my EMS days. And this was kind of a big one and also kind of a turning point where I knew that my kind of coping skills and that my way of viewing the world had changed substantially. And, and it happened over time. I don't think I, I saw this one coming. Um, my, my parents both worked in healthcare and I'd had conversations with them uh, kind of about this beforehand, but never to this level of, where I was forming what I can only call like a callus on my soul, uh, a way of kind of coping with things where the trauma and stuff just didn't bother me quite as much, but this one really hit home. Um, so we got called out to a mass shooting and what had happened was uh, a rival gang had came to this gentleman's house and they'd come with assault rifles and they lit up the front of his house. Uh, there was, I mean, hundreds of shell casings in the street, he made it out the back and did not get shot, but multiple people in his family got shot. And I had, uh, uh, I initially had his, his grandmother, but this was one where, you know, Ryan, you talk about, you can't imagine me taking charge or something. I was 22 years old. I was the first medic on scene. The police uh, had made it safe, but at this point until an office, a, until a EMS officer showed up, I was in charge of the entire scene. And so I had a dozen police officers. I had 20 firefighters uh, all looking to me as what to do. And it was overwhelming. And we did uh, in, in like a mass casualty incident, we started triaging and I'd never done that before. Just being like, okay, critical. You're not so bad. We got to go with this. And like, we, we kind of triage it out and I um, dispatched the other two med crews that came and we kind of took patients and we did our thing. Um, I had the grandmother, she'd been shot, uh, through the, the top of her buttocks and it had gone through her abdomen and hit the other side of her pelvis. So her femur was dislocated at that point and she was basically bleeding out of every opening from her bottom. And as we were trying to assess this, we, you know, we have to, you have to cut people's clothes off and, and the family is yelling at us. They're like, you shouldn't be doing this here. Like, and, and this is also uh, a thing where it's all white firefighters, all white medics, all white police, an entirely black community. And it was something that just struck as odd of like, I didn't want to humiliate this person, but at the same time I was trying to do my job and her family was becoming increasingly upset as we did this. Um, we got her on the backboard. We stabilized her as best we could with like the degree of injury she had. And we got her to the hospital and we, we passed her off and she actually did okay. I, I did follow up on that one. She she survived. Um, I mean, she was injured very very badly, but she she did survive. Um, where this hit home was, the whole thing was just over the top. Again, like to be on a mass shooting at all, much less to be the person that everybody's looking to for orders and to to execute it. What I thought was well um, and you know, stabilize and save somebody was a big thing. Uh, on top of just the trauma of seeing that multiple people shot at once is a lot. And I called my mom and I called her and I said, I'm upset that I'm not upset that I just did all that. And I just saw all that. 
and I'm going to go eat lunch now. And then I'm going to go meet up with my friends tonight and we're going to go out to the bar and we're going to have some beers and I'm going to laugh. And I should be like bawling my eyes out or doing something more, something different. Like whatever I'm feeling right now is just not correct. And it was this, this blunting of my emotions, uh, that really struck me as being off. And, uh, and oddly enough, afterwards, when I call my mom, she's like, good, that's, you're becoming, you know, a healthcare professional. This is what we do. You just kind of stuff it down and you don't feel that's the way you can be objective. That's the way you can move on with life. And so I, I walked away from that conversation. It's just like, I didn't know where, where to be. And, um, that was kind of the first step towards, you know, I think some of the things that became an issue later, but at that time I, I was almost like kind of proud of myself. Like, okay, I've kind of crossed this first hurdle. Like I can do this. I'm tough enough that I can do this. And uh, you were, you were self-aware enough that you thought of it as between 19 first start starting to see some of the, you know, violent trauma that people can sustain through 22, you progressed to it not affecting you. That's how you, that's how you saw it. Like, mm -hmm. if, like if that had happened on your first day, you would have been destroyed. Right. Well, basically, it basically did happen on my first day. Right. <laughs> right. But what I'm saying, like you could, you could actually delineate, you know, the progression of this really affected me early and things perfect, you know, affected mm -hmm. me less. Yeah. As opposed to you just have that mentality of like, this doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to bother me ever. Like, no, it did early on. Right? Yeah. Is that, is that, yeah. I'm not a sociopath. Like, was there ever a part of you at 19 that were like, I can deal with this better, I think, than other people? No, because you don't know until you're, you're challenged with it. Um, either, I mean, Adrian, maybe you can kind of attest to this of like the first time you're in battle, like you don't know until you know like how, how you're going to respond to it. And so this was the same thing. Like, you know, some people just walk away from it and be like, I can't do this job. And other people are like, yeah, I got this. I mean, there's, there's lifelong professional EMTs that just, they deal with it just fine. Sounds Please. just like uh performing for a bad crowd. Seems <laughs> like the stakes. Huh? The, the craziest thing to me about like um, how one responds to um some kind of extreme event <clears throat> is I grew up thinking it's like a fight or flight thing. And either you got it or you don't. And some guys got it and other guys don't. My experience is that sometimes you got it and sometimes you don't like I've done things that were heroic in combat and I was recognized for them. Um, stupid things, sort of reckless. Uh, the, the word that we have for this type of recklessness is bravery. And I've also done things, I've made choices, or my body has made choices for me that were cowardly. I've been heroic in combat, and I've been like cowardly in combat. Very fortunately, my my personal cowardice was, uh, even when I was a commander, was, was not something that affected any of my soldiers, thank God, uh, or I never would have forgiven myself. But I do think it's like, I, I don't know, and I'd love to hear more about this because I think you know some days you're you're you know you do everything you want to do and and you you strive for that even keeled professionalism, uh, but then other days you don't. I I just don't. In my experience, personally, I, I don't know. I, I've talked with some people about this. Some people agree with me. Other people, most people, haven't been in this type of situation that we're talking about, either in the military or in healthcare. Uh, but 
yeah, I, you, you want it to be binary because if you've got it, then that means you do it. And if you don't have it, then you shouldn't do it. Uh, right. Like if you if you go into combat and the guns start shooting and now you're crying and you're a wreck, you're like, OK, we're going to put you on the radio. You know, stay away from the guns. We don't want you on the guns. I just don't think it's it's like that. In my experience, it's like sometimes you got it and sometimes you don't, which I've never been able to wrap my head around. And it's one of the reasons I, you know, I left when I did uh, after seven years, because I was like, well, I, if I can't guarantee that I'm going to have it every time and every engagement, then I shouldn't have command of soldiers. Like I know that nobody told me to leave, but personally I knew that. I, I was at this point um, towards the end of my paramedic career, because I've been accepted to medical school. And uh, as I progressed through this, I always tried to look at myself as a professional and particularly with being a, wanting to go into med or being a doctor, like that I am a professional and I'm, uh, not above or, or that I am above kind of making little mistakes and stuff like that. And I, I've heard medics talk about the muscle memory aspect of things of like, you just do things, you just act, you're not even thinking about it. Um, and so much of the emotional stuff was put aside that you just thought about it later. Or the big thing, like you'd go out with a bunch of other medics and you drink. And that was the other big thing. Like that was totally normal. ER, you know, ER docs. Like how, like the self-medication, how much did your work affect that? It's hard to say. Um, before I got into medical school, I was overwhelmed with stress, like between trying to get a, a master's and trying to get into medical school. And before you get into medical school, nothing is guaranteed. You, you don't know that you're going to get in and you could keep trying and you could keep investing money and time and effort. And so like, I was a emotional train wreck at this point in my life. Um, and so as far as like self-medicating, that was actually just par for the course. And that was just everything. Everybody did this. And so like everyone, all the paramedics I knew, all the people in my graduate school, it was like going out every weekend whenever you could. Um, the, the, the medic that I worked with early on, Eric, uh, he and I, when, particularly in training, would go out until the bars closed and then come into work at six in the morning and still be, I mean, not even drunk or not even hungover, like still drunk. And our preceptor is like, what's wrong with you two? Like, smells like a bar back here. Um, and that was just kind of like, it, it wasn't it even, we were so young and so stupid. It wasn't even a coping mechanism. It, that's just what you did. Right. Given, given your age at the time, did you, would you even have viewed it like that? You know, no. like, would have been something going on anyway. No, it was just par for the course. It was just what, and even now, like when I look back and I, and I talk with my friends in the, you know, in the ER community and stuff like that, these guys party hard. Like this is just how they kind of, you know, adjust to life. So I, I was two, two years as a volunteer EMT and then two years professionally as a medic. It has an outsized effect based off the time that I put into that. Right. It's kind of like the military, you know, I was, I was, I was only, you know, from when I started my contract and my contract eight years, but uh, you know, I definitely talk about that and think about that. And that formed like who I am. You know, so you can you have chunks of time. I imagine those four years were pretty impactful for you on how you view yourself and the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, very much so. Well, I've known you for far longer than I didn't know you. I've known you since we were teenagers, and I did not know a lot of those stories. So thank you very much for um, sharing that with us. And, um, you know, obviously, yeah. I think you having a support structure has helped you kind of deal with a lot of that. Um, but um, oh, just thanks, man. Thanks for sharing a lot. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening and being there.
Thanks for listening. Uh, please take a moment and leave a review for the podcast. We would really appreciate it. Only a good review. If you have something negative, say just tell your friend or uh, you know whoever's sitting near you, whether you know them or not. Uh, don't put that on the internet. We don't need that. Uh, also, please subscribe. Um, it helps us, and uh, you know it'll help you get the podcast. Uh, right when it comes out. Also, please visit our podcast at thebaggagepodcast.com. I do not know what is on the website. I have never been, but I'm sure it's great. Probably basketball scores and stuff like that. Um, also, if you have a story or a question that you would like to share with us, please email us at thebaggagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much. And uh, we will, uh, I was going to say see you soon, but that would be a lie. Uh, we will talk at you soon. Bye.